0: Welcome to Calvary Temple Church Podcast. Thank you for listening today. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast yet, please consider doing so. You'll find reference scripture and discussion questions for this sermon in the episode description. We hope this encourages you in your spiritual growth. I want to share today in a message that's been stirring in my heart for some time. It's about, we've been looking for Months, really, about talking about following Jesus. That when we follow Jesus, it's, it's a life like none other. There, there really is. I mean, when you're really into Jesus and following him, you discover joy and peace and life in a way you'll never, ever get it anywhere else. But in the midst of a large section that's focused on discipleship in the Gospel of Mark, we read a question that was thrown at Jesus, and it almost seems out of place when we're talking about discipleship and things of like that, but actually it may be much more significant than we would think at first glance. Now, I understand we live in a world of brokenness. We're going to share today about pursuing God's design for marriage. But when we begin to look at this and the questions of divorce and remarriage begin to, uh, to, to, to be raised, it, it's, it's a difficult area for people. We don't even always know how to address this or what to do with that. But I feel like Jesus has a word that he wants to help us with today. And look in Mark 10. We're going to be in the 12 first 12 verses there today. But Mark 10 says, Jesus left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Today, just as in Jesus' day, I think as soon as people hear the word divorce or divorce and remarriage, there's all kinds of thoughts, there's emotions, there's opinions, there's attitudes that begin to come to people's mind and heart. And this passage, I think sadly, has historically been used by too many to hurt and put people down rather than point people to all that God intends for those who follow Jesus. You know, there's a lot of people today even avoid talking about divorce and remarriage because there's a lot of pain with it. They don't know what to say. or They aren't even sure what to believe about it. It's so prevalent around. So what are we to do with this passage in terms of following Jesus? It's right there in the midst of, of a large section about discipleship, and this question comes up. Well, first of all, we need to understand the background and the context here is extremely important of where this question is asked and why it was asked, because it'll set the stage for the Pharisee's challenge and Jesus' response. Many times the reason we have trouble was the way some scriptures are used as people pull them out of context. They pull them out of the setting where they're given, and they use them to try to prove a point that's not even the point of what's going on in that passage. Context is really important here. First of all, we need to understand that this wasn't a question of honest inquiry. It was intended as a trap. Notice, some Pharisees came and tested Jesus. These Pharisees weren't there to learn. All they wanted to do was try to trap Jesus with a question about divorce. They really weren't interested in truth or what God thought about it. They only wanted a reason to go after Jesus. Dr. George Wood noted that the same thing happens today. There are those who look at pastors or leaders or Christian authors or ministries or on and on, not with the intent of asking questions to learn, but to find something to destroy those who differ with them, to attack, to tear down. That's what these these Pharisees were doing against Jesus that day. They wanted to test him. They wanted to put him in a difficult place. And the location of this testing really gives us that insight into what's going on here. We've already discovered that Jesus is on the journey. Much of his ministry throughout those first few years was in the area of Galilee. He would go into Jerusalem, uh, at times, but a lot of his ministry was there in Galilee. And Jesus now is going from Galilee to Jerusalem. He's been teaching the disciples, we've been looking at this, that he's about to go to Jerusalem. He's gonna suffer there. He's gonna die. Uh, That's what's facing him. The disciples aren't really understanding it. But Jesus is resolute on going to Jerusalem because that's why he came, was to give his life for us on the cross. But on the way, Jesus went into this region of Judea. It's across from the Jordan. But this is the area where John the Baptist had ministered. We saw that back in chapter 1. It's also the area where Herod Antipas was ruling. Remember how the various areas were broke up under these governors, so to speak. And Herod Antipas was over this area. And if you'll recall, there was a conflict between John the Baptist and Herod Antipas over Herodias' divorce of her former husband. You see, Herodias had been married to the brother of Herod Antipas, married to Philip. And she divorced him in order to marry Herod. John the Baptist was saying to him, it's not lawful, according to the Jewish law, what you're doing, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Well, eventually Herod, he, he imprisoned John the Baptist. And while he was in there, Herodias, uh, uh, along with her daughter, they, they come up with a plot and scheming for how to get John the Baptist killed. And you remember the story of how. Her daughter danced before Herod and pleased him. And he got he he was looking at all this and it was not a good dance. It was a sensual kind of thing. It was his birthday partying going on. And Herod, he gets so caught up in the moment he says, Listen, ask me for anything you want. I'll give you I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. She went, she talked to her mother. She said, I want his head. I want John the Baptist's head. So the daughter came back and said, I want John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Herod felt caught. But he went in and had John the Baptist killed. His head brought in. Now the Pharisees are questioning Jesus. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? If they could trap Jesus with this question, it would have given them an opportunity to denounce Jesus to Herod, to turn him over to Herod and let Herod do their dirty work for them to get rid of Jesus. They didn't care about people. They didn't care about really what God had to say on this. They had their mind made up. All they wanted to do was put Jesus in a place where he could be trapped. You see, in that day, there were two major schools of the rabbinic thought. This is important. There was a conservative school we don't hear much about with Shammai. They taught that divorce could only be given if there was a moral failure, particularly adultery, on the part of the woman. But the liberal school of Hillel, which where most of the Pharisees were from, and had it taught, it's one that Paul grew up under, they taught that divorce could be, for about any reason, That man, you know, that the man or the husband, he doesn't care for the woman. He just gets rid of her. He gets annoyed, just gets rid of her. So the Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus responded with a question. What did Moses command you? He replied. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. These, school, these Pharisees from this liberal school, they've got this idea. Just write her a certificate of divorce and send her away. But when Moses wrote this in the book of Deuteronomy, it was try to protect the, the, the wife. Try to protect the woman. Because this is a male-dominated culture all through the ancient Near East in that time. For a woman to be divorced, she could be put out. She'd have no income. She's going to be feel this sense of shame. It would really, really especially be hard on the woman. And they were getting to the place where the man's thinking, you know what? I'm annoyed with her. She burned the toast. I'm going to get a divorce and marry somebody else. It was over little things. It's like they could do it when, whatever, for any reason. The situation here is about a man divorcing his wife in order to be free to marry another wife. Or as Mark even writes his gospel among even the Romans and the believers that are there, it could also be held the wife doing the same thing to her husband, like Herodias and Herod Antipas. And Jesus went right to the heart of the problem behind their question. Hardness of heart. We live in a world, people, just like Jesus did, where there are so many problems in life and marriage, and I think someone said it well, they're due to hardness of heart. We want what we want, when we want it, and how we want it, no matter what it means for somebody else or how it's going to cost or how it's going to hurt them. Hardness of heart is a willful determination to not do God's will, but to do our own. It's selfishness, self-interest. They rule the day. And it's easy for these Pharisees to hide behind you know, this their, their weak reasons to justify themselves. They say, well, it's legal. Moses allowed it. But the point of this passage, and this is what we've got to get, is not about finding an easy way to justify ending a marriage. That's the kind of world we live in. When it gets uncomfortable, it's unpleasant. The point of this passage is to pursue God's design for marriage. Jesus pointed them here to the original design for marriage. He goes back further than Moses and he appeals to the creation account. He lifts the discussion of marriage to a higher plane. God's original design and creation superseded the law. He's saying, Moses said, because your hearts are hard, there's a lot of problems. But it's never really been God's design. Jesus said, let me tell you what God has in mind for you. And people, this is a word for every one of us, no matter where we're at in life. If we're single and wanting to be married, if we're married, if if we've gone through divorce and remarriage and we're in those kind of, this is a word that Jesus wants to give for hope for every one of us. We're not done. We're not discarded. God has a great plan for us. Mark 10, 6 to 9. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You see, this passage in Mark really isn't Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage as much as it's about God's design for marriage. They tried to trap him. And Jesus is saying we need to get God's perspective on marriage to pursue God's design for marriage. True followers of Jesus want that kind of marriage and I understand we come from a lot of brokenness. There are people who have already experienced this and walked through this and go, what am I to do? I have good news. People, no matter where we're at, God can take and strengthen and bless our marriage just for his glory and his honor. I understand there's a lot of pain, but there's hope in Jesus. We can't change or undo our past, but we can build our future on God's design. And that's true for every one of us people. No matter where we're at in life, if we're married, divorced, divorced and remarried, or we're single and desiring to marry, we can look at this and doing it God's way. Wow. Jesus And saying, don't look for an easy way to get out of this. You know, when we don't like something or we, you know, or, or whatever, develop a marriage, strengthen a marriage that reflects the Lord Himself, That's what he wants. Godly, Christ-centered, God-honoring marriages. So let's look at what Jesus is teaching here and what's God's design because we need to understand, first of all, marriage is God's idea. It's His idea from the very beginning of creation. And we live in a world now that has such a low view of marriage. Oh, we'll try it. We'll live together. It doesn't really matter. Marriage isn't all that. People, marriage is God's design. It's His desire. And when we will do it His way, it's amazing. There's nothing in life that's easy. There's not. But it can be really blessed. It can be really good. Marriage is between one man and one woman. That's God's design. One man, one woman coming together. And it says that a man shall leave his parents and be united to his wife. People, there's a new identity when we marry. We're no longer under the umbrella of our parents. We are forming a new identity, a new bond. And this is of the Lord. It doesn't mean we sever those old relationships. It means that they're healthy, but they're different. There's a new bond. And it says the two shall become one. Do you know this is the only relationship in the Bible that's described like this? Where two become one. I'm not talking about two halves. I'm talking about two wholes coming together and being one in Him. And the greatest representation in the Bible of our relationship with God is marriage. It really is. God uses that illustration over and over in the Scriptures. If we really want to know intimacy with God and what it is to know Him, it's shown and reflected in what the marriage relationship is designed to be. Marriage to be all God intends, though, and this is super important. We must put Christ first in our lives, our marriage, and our home. I get this. God is the one that instituted marriage. And whether people are believers or unbelievers, when they marry, they have that blessing of God. But to really have the full blessing of God, to really experience all that God's designed for us in marriage, it needs two believers, a man and a woman, that are committed to Christ and living Him and making Him central in our lives. That's the kind of marriage God really wants. Consider the great commandment when we look at marriage. Mark 12, 28 to 31, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. We are called to love God with our entire being and everything we do and what we think in our homes. We get that. But notice Jesus is also saying, love your neighbor as yourself. People, how would it be if we would love our spouse like ourselves? How would it be if we love our spouse like Jesus loves us? That would make for a great, great marriage. Great marriage. Stories told of a woman who went to a counselor wanting to get a divorce. She wanted to really, really hurt her husband. This Christian counselor said, I'm going to give you an assignment. He said, for the next 30 days or so, I want you to treat your husband like a king. No complaining, no griping. You care for him. You treat him nice. You speak well to him. You do all these things. You just pour out all you can on him, and at the end of thirty days, he'll he'll have so fallen in love with you, then you can break his heart by telling him you want a divorce. Well, she came back at the end of the. She said, "I like that, so I'm going to get him." At the end of thirty days or so, she came back. She talks to this counselor. She said, "You know, in this in this time, I've done everything you said. I've done nothing but good to him." But I've actually fallen in love with him again. I don't want a divorce. People, we need to understand that actions precede feelings. When we begin to treat others with the love of God and minister, something happens in our own hearts. There's something about this. Love God. Love others. There's a change. So let me give today a few suggestions. Ideas to build, strengthen, and give value to our marriages. One of the books that we love to use in pre-marriage counseling, love to give to others, is by Drs. Les and Leslie Perot. It's called Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. It's a phenomenal book. And they mention in here, and I agree with them, that the most important and least talked about aspect of a healthy marriage is the spiritual dimension they ask they see they, they asked this question how do a man and a woman become soulmates and they said it's exactly where you might suspect deep in the soul wow people we need in our lives spiritual intimacy god designed us to be in relationship not just at a physical level but in with our entire being at a soul level. Within every one of us, there's an aching, a longing in the heart for spiritual meaning. It was Augustine back in the 400s that said that there's within each of us a God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill. People, there's a longing in us. There's something that longs for, for spiritual meaning in our lives. And for married couples, spiritual meaning should be a shared pursuit even seemingly happily married couples will get to a place in their life where something seems to be missing if they don't have a spiritual connection. People, this is vital and essential to good marriages, spiritual intimacy. But we also need to discover and find God and see his plan in marriage. How is God revealed in marriage? Because we've said marriage is closer to the nature of God than any other human relationship. God uses the metaphor of marriage to describe how he relates to humanity, to us. In Isaiah 62, 5, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God. Rejoice over you. I love one of the pictures that Ruth and I have, and I can't even remember exactly what the incident was, but on the day we were married, they got us caught you know, on camera standing next to each other, and we're both laughing with that deep, deep... Oh, Got heartfelt kind of laughter, you know. And you can't help but look at that parent and go, man, that was cool, you know. People, God wants us in our marriages. He wants to, to for us to experience that kind of rejoicing over one another. That's the way God sees us. He wants us to experience that. In Ephesians 5, and I encourage you to read this section later, Ephesians 5, 25 to 33, we see in here, The command, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and presented himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. He's saying here, husbands, we are to love our wives deeply in the same way Jesus loves the church. He gave himself for us. He calls in here, and this is a mutual thing. Wives are to love and respect and honor their husbands as well. This goes both ways. But he's saying here, this is God's design. But notice the language here, husband and wife. And and he goes on to say in the same way that we love our bodies. People don't go around going, I hate my body, I'm going to destroy it. If when we do that, we've got a problem. We go around, we want to take care of our body. We want to preserve, we want to do the best we can for our bodies that we can. And the same is true in marriage. We want to do the best for one another. It's the metaphors that we get here of what he's saying. Through marriage, God shows himself in two important ways. Marriage reveals God's faithfulness. People, what would marriage be without faithfulness? I often, often in counseling with people will talk about this is one of the reasons why it's so important to abstain from sexual relations before we go into marriage. Because when we come together, it's a way of people being able to understand and know that we can be trusted. We are faithful. We're committed to that one. Wow. Faithfulness. Marriage needs faithfulness on our part. It needs it on our spouse's part. We need to be able to be trusted and counted on. But people, we ultimately need God's faithfulness in marriage. Robertson McQuilkin was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary. It's now Columbia International University. I read a, one of his books. About ethics, but it wasn't until years later that I learned this story about him. They were—he and his wife Muriel were married for 55 years. They met at that same school, and 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 he just fell in love with her. And his dad was the president then, and later he would become. 1968, Robertson McQuilkin became the president there. Under his leadership. The school grew and on and on, but they had an amazing love story in in their lives. But somewhere around 1978, she began to have some memory things. In 1981, when through a hospitalization on her heart, the doctor told Robertson, "You need to consider she's dealing with early part of." Alzheimer's disease. It's hard to believe she was still so young. But as it went on, it was obvious this began to afflict her. Over the next few years, Robertson watched helplessly as this fun, creative, loving partner slowly began to fade away. She found it more and more difficult to express herself. She stopped speaking in complete sentences and relied on phrases and words. But she had this happy spirit about her. One phrase, though, that she often said was, I love you. And Robertson learned a lot about love from Muriel and from God during those years. 1990, he knew he was going to need to make a decision about his career. He's president. He's eight years away from retirement. But Muriel needed him now full time. And he said in the end, the decision w- was easy. He wrote in his letter to the to the college there. He said, recently it's become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she's with me. And most none of the time I'm with her. It's not just discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror, that she's lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. There were times when he was at the school, uh, she would do it up to 10 times a day. She would leave the house and she would walk to where he was at the school to the point that her feet became bloody, torn up, the love that was going on. So he said, it's clear to me, she needs me full time. And he said, the decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So he said, I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. He said, she's cared for me fully, sacrificially all these years. He said, if I cared for her the next 40 years, I still wouldn't be out of her debt. So he said, duty, that can be grim and stoic. He says, I love Muriel. She's a delight to me. He says, I don't have to care for her. I get to. And it's a high honor for me to care for such a wonderful person. He became the homemaker, the caregiver, and he was thankful for it. And he was pouring himself into this and he thought maybe his public ministry would now be over. But it transformed into something altogether different in a culture where people prized as individual freedoms above everything else. Here was the simple story of a man who loved and served his wife. And it touched people everywhere when they began to hear it. He got invitations to share. And when people asked him if he ever tired of caring for Muriel, he'd say, no way. I love to care for her. She's my precious. That's what he called her. Wow. He continued to love his wife till the very end of her life. Wow. 2003. 13 years. He took care of his wife. You know there are those who say, "Well, it's okay if you want to uh, divorce if somebody has Alzheimer's and marry somebody else. They won't know. Put them away in an institution." I think I think that uh, Ed Stetzer got it right when he said Robertson McQuilkin chose the better. He loved his wife. All the way. Wow. Marriage reveals God's faithfulness. in the way we live that out. His faithfulness to us. Jesus didn't give up on these disciples. But you glad he doesn't give up on us. And marriage reveals God's forgiveness. I know this is no surprise. But living together day after day. We're bound to cause some pain. Sometimes innocently, sometimes not. And we need to learn to let forgiveness fill our homes and our lives and be quick to ask for forgiveness and be quick to give forgiveness. Last thing I want to share is that from, from this couple, the Perros, we need to tend to the soul of our marriage. How do we do that? Superficiality is the cause of a restless marriage. The desperate need of most marriages, people, is not for more excitement, not for more glitz, not for more activity. The soul of your marriage yearns for depth to be deep at the soul level. There are a few, there's a number of classic spiritual disciplines, but let me just mention three in passing that can help develop this intimacy, worship. A couple that learns to worship together, that's a part of coming together and in a body of believers and gathers together regularly to worship and seek the Lord. A couple that has a, an altar where they can worship and, and in their home finds those places just to stop and give God praise and glory and honor. But also if a couple will learn to serve others together. Do you realize so often we're so selfish, but if we would learn to do things together and not always let everybody else know what we've done, just do things that will minister to other people, man, there's a sure joy in doing that, learning to serve, learning to reflect Jesus, but also to pray together. Say, well, how do we do that? Learn to just give thanks for who God is, what He's done. Maybe pray through the Lord's Prayer and take and unpack that as you pray through this and bring in the needs and the requests. Maybe have a time where you're together and there's a place of silent prayer and just listening to God. Maybe it's conversational prayer where each one's sharing a sentence or two at a time and going back and forth. Try other ways, but the point is find a way to pray together because when you do, there's an intimacy that happens in that relationship. The cry of our coal, our hearts, people of our soul, to be connected can only be quenched when we're connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. The secret to becoming soulmates is to pursue a mutual communion with the Lord. We need to put Christ first. Pray, read our Bibles, and value your spouse. Let me share one more illustration. I know I've gone a little longer today, but I feel this topic so important. A father said to his daughter, he said, you know, you graduated with honors. Here's a car I acquired many years ago. I know it's old, but before I give it to you, he said, take it to the used car lot downtown and tell them that I want to sell it and see how much they offer you. So she went down there, daughter came back. She said, they offered me $1,000 because it looks very worn out. The father said, okay, now take it to the pawn shop. The daughter went to the pawn shop, came back, told her father, said the pawn shop offered $100 because it's a really old car. The father asked his daughter to go to a car club and show them the car. The daughter came back. She took the car to the club. She returned. She came back and told her father, some people in the club are offering me $100,000 because it's a Nissan Skyline R34. It's an iconic car and it's sought after by many. The father said to his daughter, the right place values you the right way. Those who know your value are those who appreciate you. People, marriage is to be the place where we see the value in others. Amen? Jesus said that if we gain the whole world and lost our soul, we've lost everything. What's a prophetess? Our soul is worth more than all the world. People, you are worth more. Your spouse is worth more. Your family is worth more. Wow. Put Christ first. Love, cherish, respect, honor one another. Seek to bless, and you'll have a marriage like none other. Isn't that awesome? Wow. Let me wrap up today. God wants us to raise our view of marriage, to see the sanctity and the holiness of marriage through God's purposes. How can we better value, love, honor, and respect our spouse? Put Jesus first, because God wants marriage to be very good. Remember in creation, when he created man, he said, that's very good. God wants our marriages to be very good. If you're single, hear me. Don't go looking for the right person to satisfy you and make you complete. Put Christ first. Follow him and seek to be the right person. Wow. Older saints, I want to encourage you. Pour your life into singles, young couples, families. Set a godly example today for marriage and what God intends. Widows, widowers. You can pour your lives into others as well and encourage and help them. Single or married or whatever. There's a ministry. People need good godly models of marriages from believers who are seeking to put Christ first be true followers of Jesus if we'll follow Jesus we'll find a life like none other I want to pray today for all of us for those that are online to be able to really experience all God designed for us Father Touch our hearts today. You have a plan and purposes for our lives to be in relationship with you and to be in relationship with others. And today, Lord, we're particularly talking about marriages. Lord, your design is for great marriages. And we live in a world where there's such brokenness, Lord, that marriage has almost been cast aside is as unimportant or not that big a deal. But Lord, if we will pursue marriage in the way you've designed it, Lord, wow, we can't even begin to imagine what you will take us into in our lives. It's the greatest example of what relationship is with you. So I'm asking you, Lord, to bless marriages, to help people to put Jesus first in their lives and their marriages, to commit their lives to Christ, to turn from sin, and let Jesus be our Savior and Lord and live for you. Father, bless marriages that are struggling. Realize our answer is in you. The closer we get to you, the closer we get to one another. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.